Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of This Moment, a podcast done by chef extraordinaire, living legend, author, activist, I like to call him, very avid runner, an incredible soccer player, Marcus Samuelson, the intersection of Ethiopia, Harlem, and Gothenburg, and myself, Jason Diakite, aka Timbuktu, rapper, author, hailing from the south of Sweden, rooted in South Carolina, Harlem, Pennsylvania, Slovakia, everywhere. This moment is the platform where Marcus and I unpack our experiences as black men on an international scene, reflecting on the momentous shifts going on in our world today. Today's episode is a very special one. That's why we're hitting you on a Friday. We usually go Tuesdays because Marcus Samuelson, had the chance to sit down and talk to author and activist Kimberly Latrice Jones, who many of you have seen on her seven minute clip that went viral and brings tears to my eyes every time I see it. And I've seen it eight, nine, 10 times where she's standing on a street corner and prophetically, profoundly, and emotionally unpacking the whys of oppression, the whys of protest, the whys of oppressive economics, the whys of why we are shouting no justice, no peace, and burn, baby, burn. So check it out. This is a real special one, folks. Kimberly Latrice Jones and Marcus Samuelson in conversation on this moment. If I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are pla- those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. 
Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood, how can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. Welcome to this moment, Star. What's going on, Kimberly? How are you? I'm doing good. My grandmother used to say every day above ground is a good day. So It is. You know, I, it's lovely to see you with the braids because... Um, when I saw Toni Morrison the very first time, I grew up in Sweden, I saw Toni Morrison when she won the Nobel Prize for literature, I wanna say the late 80s, early 90s. And she stood there like a queen, gray braids for all these guys and looking a certain way. So those purple uh, dreads are perfect when you're gonna pick up the Nobel Prize in economics. I'm not joking, I'm putting it out there. I appreciate that. Because the way you broke down social injustice, I don't think I've ever, maybe Malcolm, maybe Chuck D, but the way you broke it down, mm, thank you. Where did that come from? It's interesting because I work with a, a nonprofit that um, works with uh, marginalized girls who are in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And so every year I create workshops for them. And yes. so I was trying to teach them about economics and wealth building. And, you know, what I wanted them to really learn about was real estate and the importance of owning real estate and why land is so important yes. and why it's, which is why people have, you know, tried to keep us from owning land and things like that because of its significance. And so I was trying to teach them about that. And the quickest way I could think to teach them because they're between the ages of 13 and 18 was Monopoly. Mm. So the, I did a workshop with them ab about wealth building and I used Monopoly as the basis for helping them to understand wealth building. And so one of the girls in the class was like, but I hate Monopoly because like you could just end up in jail and you could like pick something in community chest. The next thing you know, like your whole life is ruined. And so that like toils around in my mind. But the day when the video was recorded, I had never framed it in that way before. It was just the voice of this young girl talking about how going yes, to jail yes. and falling in community chess could like affect your whole life. And I guess the ancestors must have been talking through me that day because that's just how it came out. What's been the response like, you know, for you? It's interesting because like I, I, I definitely expected to get some backlash, right? Because it was delivered with so much like in your face aggressiveness mm -hmm. um, and, and unapologetically so, you know, especially like that last line. I'm like, 
Y'all are lucky that what we're looking for is equality and not revenge. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely, I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer by trade. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna get canceled. Like my writing career is over. I might as well just like start writing poems to myself again or something. Yeah. But, but overall, like I've really received a positive response. Um, you know, of course I have my share of trolls just like everybody else, but for the most part, the response has been very positive. And it's, it's been interesting to me because I feel like some of the like larger voices that would have been in opposition have been mute. I think they've almost been fearful of making a response to it because it's been received so yeah. well globally by and yeah, large. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, yeah. they put up a mural to me in in Belgium. I was like, oh. Get used to it because, you know, like we all knew this stuff, but we haven't heard it like that, packaged like that. And that's the power of intent and video and viral all in one, right? And, and bringing that monopoly identity to it was something that anyone can understand it. But talk to me, you are a writer and I'm not dying with you tonight. Um, which is really like what? It's like the two of you guys going through a story here. Talk to me about that. How did that come about? So I'm Not Dying With You Tonight is a a young adult novel that I wrote with my dear friend, uh, Gilly Siegel. Um, Oddly enough, we started to write it in 2015. Now it almost feels like prophecy because it is the story of two 17-year-old girls, one black and one white, who survived the night together in riots. And they aren't participants in the riots just through no uh, fault of their own. They ended up in the midst of the riots. And so they have to kind of lean on each other to survive the night. And how how it all started is we were inspired by a story that we read um, in 2015 after the civil unrest in Baltimore, after the death of Freddie Gray, we read this story about a, a group of kids who they had, the city had shut down public transportation and the kids couldn't get home. And so they got trapped in the riots and trapped behind, eventually trapped behind a police barricade. And so my co-author and I, we're both moms um, and we were really worried. Like she brought the story to me and she was really worried about like, you know, what happened to these kids kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. that kind of sparked this idea for the book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. And so um, it's told in a dual narrative. So it's in alternating chapters, it kind of leapfrogs. You get a Campbell chapter, which is the white girl, which Geely, who is white, predominantly wrote. And then you get Lena, who's the black girl, which I predominantly wrote. And you get to see how differently they see the, the, they see the same night. And so we like to say the book is as much about perspective as it is about race. But we also say that you know, the moments in which they really see eye to eye and they why they decide to work together is because they're both female and there's this omnipresent threat to the feminine form, which, you know, informs their decision to stay together over the night. And so we we utilize all of that to tell this tale and force them to have these difficult conversations. And we made them two 17-year-old girls because there's a, a certain level of discovery when you're a teenager to these yeah. conversations that will allow them to have the conversations in a more raw way in which adults don't do because we edit ourselves. Mm-hmm. And relatability too. So I think that's beautiful. And you can get that on KimberlyJones.com. Yeah, at KimJonesWrites.com, but it's sold everywhere. Books are sold at uh, Target, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Books A Million, it's everywhere. I wanted to also talk to you about This is something that I don't fully understand and maybe you can unpack for me. When black women are in this battle as well, right? Like when we might not be as common, but they're also there as partners, so they're definitely in this. So when something like Breonna Taylor happens, why and how doesn't that get the same level of response? 
because you think about that, she was in her bed. You cannot be in a more peaceful, safe environment. So we uh, that the Brianna Taylor story, we've kind of been struggling getting that on front news and then it gets up there and then it goes away. Can you walk us through that? Because that story is a story of black women in America at this moment, not just in America, in, you know, it's blackness everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to me that, you know, and there's been quite a few women who have met their demise at the hand of police officers. Mm-hmm. Um, I A few years ago, one of my really good friends who's a hardcore frontliner, I walked with her as she walks with a group of mothers who have lost their child, their children to police brutality. And we did a march here in Atlanta. It was, it was two years ago. We did a march here in Atlanta with all the mothers. And the group that I marched with, it was probably about 14 moms. And like eight of them had lost their daughters who had not received national news um, on their deaths. And so we've been trying to figure out and unpack why it is that that women who, who suffer at the hand of police don't receive the same news coverage and information mm-hmm. as the men. And the best thing that, you know, that we can, the best thing that we've been able to come up with is that because by and large media is still a male dominated medium yeah. and not necessarily in terms of who you're seeing in front of the camera, but who's, con- who's controlling the control room are still yeah. men. And so there's this connectiveness to them and these stories, even if they aren't African-American, there's this, there's this connectiveness of a man who has a family at home who's losing his life that they understand that there's definitely not the people in you know green lighting power positions that are women as frequently to have that emotional connection to the women and so it doesn't become you know top of their list in terms of informing yeah. they'll they'll give it a blip in the news and make sure yeah. there's commentary about it but but it won't get a heavy rotation in the way in which the men who have suffered have um, and so that's that's part of like the, I mean, there's so many issues we got to deal with, so yeah. many things we have to fix. And that's one of, you know, that's one of the other overarching issues that we have to deal with is having women in powers of position so that they can empathize with our own voices and making sure we're getting the attention. Yeah. What is what is passive activism? What is that? One of, one of my favorite descriptors of passive activism is voting, right? So people will say to you, we need to get out to vote. And we do. I definitely think we need to get out and vote. Our ancestors fought and died for us all to have the, the right to vote. You know, people survived apartheid for us to vote. They survived Jim Crow for us to vote. Uh, you know, uh, aboriginals in Australia had to fight for votes. So that is something that has affected the entire diaspora. And so voting is important, but it's also a very passive act, right? Because if you're voting the lesser of two evils, you're not really pushing the needle forward. And so one of the things that we have to be more conscious of is, is two things, it's twofold. One is we have to be more active in deciding who are who we're actually electing and who are getting those seats. Um, because there are community leaders that are invested in the community that are from that community that could potentially be viable candidates, that the community itself is not putting their funds around that candidate and say, okay, you need to have this seat because you represent the ideals of this community. And that is the more active activism that we're just have to Mm. get involved in. The other thing is I tell people all the time, poor people vote and rich people lobby. 
So we have to make sure that we are investing our money into lobbying budgets so that because that's how laws really get passed is through lobbying. I mean, you look at an organization as ancient and beautiful as the NAACP Image Award and their lobbying budget is $500,000. That's barely going to get one law passed. And so when people are asking, yeah, where yeah, can yeah. I if where can I put my money where my mouth is? Well, give some money to the NAACP lobbying budget because they can definitely use that because that is how laws get passed by and large is through lobbying. So if we want some of these large laws changed in terms of what's happening with, you know, the police and economics and healthcare in our community, then we're going to have to fight for those laws and lobbying is where those laws get fought. But that takes money and that takes investment from the community. You've been doing this work for a long time. And uh, why do you think this moment, right, because we've seen the Rashad Brooks. We are used to maybe we haven't seen the George Floyd before that visible. But the mod we've seen, talk to me about what was this pivoting moment? Why is this so different? Or is it? It is, it is very different because there's been this massive global response and the and the people have taken control of this movement, right? Um, this the, the people have taken to the street and it's been a global response. But I also don't think that it's a surprise that it comes on the back of a global pandemic where mm. people were at home sitting still, paying attention, and they didn't have to take the kids to soccer or worry about getting that paper done for work or having a 14-hour workday where they wanted to just come home and decompress. They were actually in a, you know, for the most part, I know it's a stretch to say relax state when you're in the middle of a pandemic, but for the most part in a relaxed state where they were actually able to consume the information, take it in and view it. And that George Ford Floyd case, that eight minutes and 46 seconds is so ridiculously brutal to watch. It's so difficult to watch. It's so jarring. And so it's like, there is no way that you can watch that and not be, you know, and not be shunned by it. And then to know that we're in the middle of like an upheaval in the way in which we are and for an officer to pull his firearm and then shoot Rashad Brooks in the back in the midst of it all like there it was all of these situations were so alarming that they couldn't be denied but again i think the pandemic played a part in it because people were at home in a way in which they consumed oh, no. that information and young people are leading the charge on this so this is a new more fearless generation that has been waiting for their moment to strike and they took it what does the end look like? What is what is the win? Like how when do we know we're over the finish line? Is there a finish line or do we just move it? What I mean, there are smaller goals, right? But what is what is the end of 2020 look like in your world? Like what do you think the win looks like? I think I think it's a, we have a long road ahead of us because there's so much work that needs to be done in so many different capacities. But I think what we look like at the end of 2020 is once pe- once people are back at home and they're no longer in the streets, I think that what we're going to be looking at is smaller organized groups, right? So mm. people are starting to recognize the significance of not just the federal elections, but how important their local elections look to them and how that has a massive effect on their community and how they have to be vocal about what they want done in order to change things in their community. So I think that now people are, you know, people are not just out there walking the streets and yelling. They're talking to each other. They're exchanging yeah. emails and 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 social media hmm. accounts and they're making friends and relationships with like-minded people. And I think what you're going to see is people working in very small packs within their community making incremental change that's going to ripple throughout the the country. Yeah. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see the results of this time. You are in in Atlanta and Georgia, where 
so much of this is happening because you think about Atlanta is really like a black capital in a way, the way DC used to be and the world looks at it. But then also we look at Atlanta from voting looks completely backward. And then like there's so many good and so many perplexing things within the community. Like what was going on during the voting? Like, like what, what happened? Come on. So here's the interesting part that I am part of a class action lawsuit that's actually suing Governor Kemp um, because there was, first of all, during that election, which I don't even know how this is legal. I don't even know how this is a legal thing. He was the secretary Mm. of state when he was in that election, which means he oversaw the election board while he was running for governor. So if there were any discrepancies, then he got to fix them. And I'm like, how, how is this even a thing? How is this even allowed? How do we even have a system that would allow this to transpire? Um, yeah. And so what happened was they, my vote in particular, how I knew that my vote wasn't counted in that election was I did early voting. And so, yeah. so when you do early voting, you can call the election board and make sure that your vote is registered. And I continuously called the voting board and my, my vote was never registered. And so then a girlfriend of mine who had gone to vote with me as well, hers was never registered, but she had sent in votes for her husband. Um, She had mailed votes for her husband and her mother, and they were both voted. Now, she came and voted in my neighborhood, which is a predominantly Black neighborhood. She sent the mail for her father, I mean, for her husband and her mother from her neighborhood, which was a predominantly white neighborhood. So there started to be all these bells and whistles of these discrepancies happening uh, predominantly in minority communities. And then when it came to time for the state to issue machines and things like that, they were in, they were issuing far less machines in the Black community. So now you have lines wrapped around the building of, you know, 100 people standing in line trying to vote on six or seven machines in their district when they know that this district has a large populace. And so there were all these inconsistencies that, you know, that were, and then they, and then they did things like redistricting right before the election. um, So that like, you would get to a poll thinking that's still where you vote only to find out, no, your poll has been moved, you know, five miles up the road. And now you're on the verge of missing voting because now you're in your car trying to drive to this address that you're unfamiliar with. So there was, again, there was this systematic way of trying to suppress the black vote that was so ridiculously blatant that it got called out. The lawsuit is still going and pending against Governor, Governor Kemp. He knows good and doggone well that he stole that election from Stacey oh, no. Abrams. Yeah. yeah, she should definitely be our governor. And I tell you what, if she had been our governor, the way in which the unrest looked in the state of Georgia would have been very, very different if Keisha had Stacey to communicate with and not Governor Kemp. That's no. been happening a lot in Georgia. Someone like yourself, right? Would you consider to run... Or do you feel like this medium is more powerful because you you you're almost in a in a in the way I see it you're almost better working outside the system to support the system because if you work in the system there's so many boundaries and laws and stuff that you gotta kind of cover or would you run like what what would talk to me about that no I have 
no interest in running. I definitely want to stay exterior to the system and work mm-hmm. within. I do have an interest, though, on working with and grooming young candidates for some of these local seats. So that's something that my team and I are working on putting together. We're working on putting together a leadership academy for, for um, young, viable candidates and giving them the education, the support, the financial support, the grooming that they need in order for us to flip some of these seats, um, whether they're young lawyers who are interested in becoming judges or looking at at city council seats, may, you know, mayorships and governors. And we, we're going to start it here in Georgia and over time expand it out. Not necessarily that we're going to expand it out, but have a system that we can hand over to the next state and say, hey, are you interested in setting up you know, a local branch here in Virginia and doing it here? Um, I think it's very important that we start grooming a fresh a crop of candidates. You have to think about it. We have some people who are in Congress and the Senate that have been in those positions for 40, even as much as 50 years. And when you think about the time in which they were elected and the sentiment and the nature Mm -hmm. of when they were put in those seats, they were put in those seats during Jim Crow. Um, And they were people who were groomed and raised during Jim Crow. And so they're carrying those sentiments and those mentalities to the, you know, to their, to vote. And they're still thinking that the best thing they ever did was to, you know, give us the civil rights bills and that now they can, and now they're done. And so we need fresh eyes. And, and when I'm saying fresh eyes, I mean, I don't mean they need to be 25. They, a, a 40 year old is fresh eyes um, in comparison to what's, to what's sitting um, in Congress and the center right now. And even some of the people that I admire that I think are absolutely amazing in the house. I feel like at this point, as you said, working within, they have things that they're fighting against internally. And so they may not even be as connected to their constituents mm-hmm. as they once were. And so I think we just need fresh eyes in there. And and with this newfound movement and global recognition of where we are in the world and how we got there, which I'm hoping that's what my video did was to explain to people, this is how we got here. And until we deal with that, we're going to be spinning our wheels. I think with, you know, a new crop of candidates, we can actually get some work done. So I I would prefer to work from from that aspect on the outside and just make sure that there are incremental changes. I was highly disappointed when I went to vote um, a few weeks ago and almost all of the judges in my district were running unopposed. And so we need to let, you know, young lawyers know that this is a space where we need them, where we need fresh voices, because some of these judges' records are deplorable. And I'm grateful to be in a state where judges are elected, because in some states they're selected. But even with that, then you need to look at the person who's selecting them and see if they're doing their job. You know, I I didn't know if it was a good thing or a sad thing. I haven't really made up my mind yet. But that video for me, for a lot of people, was more powerful in teaching American history in just a couple of minutes than all the American history books have done combined, right? So the brilliant part of that is that you did it and it cut through, it broke through. But there's also something sad in that, that we don't discuss about Tulsa. And you know, you have you have him doing the dog whistle on Juneteenth, holding his rally. But it's hard maybe for you to think about your video from a bad or from a positive, but of course it was meaningful and powerful. But why do we know so little? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think that the video was very important and it came at a time when the world needed it. And so I yes. think it has its significance. I, I honestly do think it's sad that, that uh, you know, Tulsa and Rosewood were things that were like revolutionary news to people that they hadn't had no. There's even an amazing film about Rosewood that John Singleton made many, many years mm-hmm. ago that people sure. haven't seen. And see, and to me, that goes to show 
that lends to the conversation that I'm always ha- having with people when people are saying, how am I a be- better ally? How do I help more? And I'm like, do you consciously view and even consume art that is created by people who don't look like you? Because yeah. that that missing piece of education, like there's a brilliant film about Rosewood starring yeah. Bing Rangs that, that John Singleton made. And then, you know, I don't know if people realize that that, that, that you know, that that opening sequence um, with Regina King and those guys was like, that of Tulsa was like actually real or if they just thought it was like part of the comic book world. Um, and so there is a sadness that in, um, you know, Black history is American history. They are intertwined. They are not separate. And so that's why it's unfortunate that we only teach it in February and we have about 12 markers of things that we continually teach. And those people are important. Like we need to teach about King. We need to teach about Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. I think it's, you know, very essential that we teach about them. But the canon of who helped to, you know, sculpt Black history as we know it, both in positive, you know, and difficult times is very important. And then it's not just about the struggle. I mean, we've had, we've had amazing, amazing advances um, in this country that have been created by Black people that people are aware of. And so it should just be a part of American history because that's what it is. But when the victor, if you will, is writing the history, they're never going to write themselves the villain. And so if you write something like Tulsa, if you write about the the sharecropper slaughter that happened in Florida, or you write about the fact that they displaced many people um, in Seneca Village, which is now known as Central Park because they pushed those people out, made them homeless through eminent domain to build a park. If you write about these things, then whiteness can no longer be revered as something that is supreme to everybody else. And that is what people don't recognize when we're using the terminology of white supremacy is that that's what it looks like is this ever evolving conversation that is also a lot of time rooted in lies in in order to uplift whiteness above everybody else. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissue. Shoes 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I want to ask you about a lot of things that we talk about this moment is how do you deal with race within the family? Like when, so for example, I live right across a street from an historic park, Marcus Garvey Park, right here in Harlem. And my son and I, we're in that park every day, every day. There's not a day goes by that he's not in that park and I'm running after him. Um, and last week, there was a news hung in our park. Right. And he just shh. a lot of stuff happens in that park. But like that's like it's such a mental when people do. I imagine somebody walked up to the water tower with an intent. This is going to scare people. And my son is only four. But. I was like the talk, the talk that every parent, black parents going to have with their son. Right. I was hoping maybe I can have that at 12, 13 and even the idea of the talk is for white people is very often thought about the sex talk. And for black people, every black person knows what that is. So I I was thinking about when is appropriate to start talking about race and racism, do you think? And how, how does when when did you start to talk to your family about race and racism? Um I I was put in a position where I had to have a very early my my son's father and I, we had to have a very early conversation with our son about race when he um, experienced racism and was not unaware of it. And we realized that we hadn't had the conversation with him yet, thinking that he was too young to have it when he was about six years old. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a kid at school that was making commentary about his hair and, and, yeah. and doing and saying some things that was basically like othering his mm -hmm. hair. And so we had to have a conversation with him about that because he was confused as to why this was even something that the kid would like pick at or make fun of. And so I find that parents are having to have these conversations earlier and earlier with their kids. And the issue is, is that as much as we're having the talk at home, kids of other cultures are not necessarily been, being given a talk, but they're overhearing because, you know, kids eavesdrop and, yeah. and ear hustle every conversation. So these kids are overhearing these unfortunate conversations in their household, whether it's from a parent or a grandparent or uncle. And so they're carrying that around in with them and they're acting upon it. So it's forcing us to have the conversations younger and younger. You know, as a writer, one thing that I always think is an amazing tool to have these conversations with kids are books because books are, are portals into difficult conversations if they are the proper books and you can utilize them and there's amazing pictures there and to just to goes to show you how young people are thinking about these conversations there are amazing picture books that are centered around having these conversations one of my favorite people in the world is dr brianna mcdaniel and she has a book called hands up 
which is wow. about, yeah, about a little girl attending a, you know, it, it, you know, she goes throughout the book, raising her hand and different things. And it, it lands on her having her hands up at a protest. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's an, you know, that is a great one for having a conversation with kids about what's happening in the world right now with protests and why people are taking to the street. But I think it is, you know, I think those conversations are being had as, as young as your son, as young as four. Yeah. Unfortunately, and as much as we don't want to do that, because we do want to think just like the sex talk, right? I want to wait till they're 12 or 13 yeah. when they're equipped enough to grapple with the information. But the world is going to have that conversation with them before that. And we can't send them out without the weaponry that they need to know how to to respond to it. So yeah, I think as soon as they get ready to start going to school when they're in a mixed environment, you have to have that conversation with them. Mm -hmm. No, I love that with the the Hansa book and the picture book because it is something that has to, that we have to, we all need these tools. Um, you know, other thing that I had to relearn and think about, and I think it's important that it comes up now, is that admitting that we're not colorblind. What does that actually mean, do you think? And why is that not a good thing if someone says they're, they're colorblind? Like, because these are, these are things we're taught very often to say, oh, I'm colorblind. But help me understand that a little bit better. I think, I think that the whole conversation of like colorblind education started like in the 90s with good intent. Um, but, you know, sometimes good intent ends badly if it's not properly thought out. And I think that what people were, what the initial intent of that conversation was, okay, I'm just not going to see color, which means that I'm not going to mistreat you based on your color. Um, but what ended up happening was that I'm not going to see color. So I can't acknowledge the discrepancies that are happening in your life because of your color is what happened on the back end of that. Um, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating your culture. I think all of the cultures of the world, I think it's a beautiful, magnificent thing to see the cultures that were created and developed based on, you know, understandings and language and, and where you are in the country, you know, just even based on climate, right? Like if you're in a warmer climate, you're going to have a different culture than someone in a colder yeah. climate. Um, and so I think, I think the difference is beautiful and it's like this magical map that we can all explore and learn to enjoy each other as long as we're not appropriating each other's color a culture and and not othering each other's culture and not deciding that because you have a different culture then you are less than and i think that's been like the bigger issue is that you know we have there's been this dominant culture you know one of the questions people ask Geely and i a lot about the when we are doing book talks is they'll say what did you guys learn from each other from writing this book and Geely can you know she'll rattle off all of these things that she learned from me and they'll ask me what did i learn from her while writing the book and i often say that everything that i I learned about her from writing this book is really rooted in the fact that she's Jewish and the things that I learned about her Jewish culture, because as a black person living in America, I learned about whiteness through osmosis. Like it is, yeah. it is the dominating culture. And so I don't need someone to teach me about whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, but there, but there has not been this effort um, from the more prominent um, culture to learn about other people's culture in a way that is admirable because if you you know if you if you had done that you would know that like black people are colorful people who we like we yell at each other when we talk and just because we just because we do that does not mean that we're remedial it's cultural you know what i mean yeah. and so it's like if you recognize yeah. that when you hear people talking loudly to each other which is this cultural this beautiful for the record yeah 
cultural marker for us, then you don't get skittish and then call the police who then become and behave like authoritarians when they're, you know, handling us. Um, and so I, I think colorblindness is a misstep because if you don't learn about other people's cultures, then you'll miss markers that can stop yeah. you from making bad decisions. I love that. Thank you for explaining that. And it's like you said, you go to a tropical climate, you're not wearing that, you know, big jacket. And if you're going into a dance part party and you know there's going to be dance hall or reggae, you're not, you know, like you know what, you know, you know a little bit about culturally what it is, so that you can prepare yourself. Uh, I have a couple of quick questions. Who do you think Biden uh, will pick? Because we know it's a woman, and I think almost guaranteed it's going to be a black woman. And Atlanta has a lot of incredible. I mean, I wish that we would pick you, but you're not running. But uh, if you're going to get picked, but if it's not you, who who is it? You know, I don't even know who I would pick, but I think there are so many like you know, brilliant, viable Black women who are capable of taking that seat. I, you know, there's Kamala Harris and uh, Stacey Abrams. I think both of them are, you know, extremely capable. And I, and here's the thing, like, I don't think your first job in government should be president. <laughs> I don't yeah. think you, I don't think that should be like your first day on the job in government system should be being the president well, we're that experience right now yeah like that's that's not that you know can you can you imagine if someone had like never cooked a day in their life and they're like i'm head chef today um and it's like you don't even know how to put butter in the pan yeah. so <laughs> so i think that they i think that they should be i, I don't know where we when we got to this place where we were adverse to intellect and experience. And so I think that that's what we need in that place is we need, we need an intellectual who knows how to, who has the experience and the culturalism to be able to handle not only us, but the world. And I think when you look at someone like Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams and women like that, they have that, you know, they have that and they are, they are prepared and they understand, listen, Nobody better than Miss Harris knows how you get a, like a bill through, and she knows what that what that room feels like and the pulse of it is. And so I think she would actually be able to get some stuff done, um, yeah, and assist him in getting it. I mean, and Biden knows that too. But you know, I think the combination of the two of them will be able to get some stuff done. Um, and I think that 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 is significant. I don't want anybody else who this job is new to them. It's it's it is definitely time and. Um I think this is important, right? Because it's our the, our future that we all we all care about. So uh, we all we say thank you to you and we appreciate you. I'm just thinking about one thing. This is a little bit like when when Prince dropped like I don't know when Doves cries or Purple Rain. How do you come back with something bigger than this? Like, like, don't call it a comeback. Like, what, what's the next one? I'm like, the other ones you dropped has been like, but I'm waiting for when are we outside? When are we doing it? Like, what, what, what do we got next? Because I know LeBron is watching at this point. I know, the pressure. You yeah. know, I, I, I think that the best thing I could do is like, I don't even, I don't know because that was, that was so guttural. And I, again, I like, I don't even take credit for that seven minutes, I, I definitely give honor to the ancestors that they were speaking yes. through because I, I feel like I like left my body and they took over and they're like, this is what we've been needing to say kind of thing. Um, but I think that the way that I, that I move forward from that is just to continue to do the work and continue to elevate the way in which I do do the work. 
work, you know what I mean? And continue to work exceptionally hard because people have heard what I have to say, but now I think it's time that I show people what I have to do. Oh, broadcast. So, I mean, everybody wants, I know like in, in, like any family, if mom can be cool, it's like a good day, right? Even you can be cool, mom. So like when you got, what did the family say? Like when LeBron called or like other kids started to download it was like, did you get that moment or did the family just be like, nah, mom? No, you know what? It's so funny because my son is, my son is 14. So he's at the, you know, too cool for school age stage of life. Um, and, and his initial reaction was to like, kind of like mock it and be like, like, cause his, he's, um, staying with his dad. His dad is a farmer. So he likes to stay the summers with his dad so that he can be out there with yeah. the goats and chickens and stuff like that. And so he's at his dad's farm. He's calling me. He's like, Oh yeah, I just want to make sure you're still picking up the phone for me since you're so famous. Um, so he was like kind of ribbing me a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. He he can do that. He's right. Yeah, he's like he's like. Let me, this is a great way for me to like give her a hard time. So that was kind of his reaction yeah. to it. But he did at one point. He and I had a phone conversation, and he just said, "Mom, I'm like really proud of you, and it's really mm-hmm. cool to be your son." So that was like super nice. Cool. My, yeah, my son's a jokester though, so he's been just enjoying like giving me a hard time. Like he comes in the house and like snaps photos of me. Like I'm gonna post this on my Instagram, or you know. <laughs> no, can't do that. But you know what? Tell him to get his passport ready because him and mom is about to put some miles in because you 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 not only are you going to go in the country, the world wants to hear you. I know you're going to get invitations from Copenhagen, Berlin, London, because we need it. And uh, when he sits on that flight and his friends are back home, uh, it's pretty cool to go with cool mom. So, you know, and he deserves it. So, um I hope we can talk soon again. I really appreciate you. I can't tell you how this is the most excited I've been. This is it. This is my excited face. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so honored. No, no, no. This is so important for us. We 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 need you and keep, you know, doing the big fight because whatever you need from us, we're here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. It was so great to talk to you. This was a special episode of This Moment Podcast. You just heard Kimberly Latrice Jones, author and activist, tell it like it is in discussion with my brother, Marcus Samuelson. This moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an ACAST recording and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned. More depth coming your way soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.